With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. I'd like to start the show off today, Cass, by mentioning a fascinating article that I read about a recent scientific discovery involving 1.1 billion year old marine sedimentary rocks in the Sahara Desert. <laughs> okay, I have so much confidence in you that I know you're going to tie this into fashion in some clever yes, way. <laughs> Just bear with me a bit. Um, but these particular rocks were very interesting um, to a set of Australian scientists because within them, they contained remnants of ancient ocean organisms. Ooh, and that also implies that this region of the Sahara was covered by water more than a billion years ago. Yes. And when they put them to some rigorous scientific analysis, the rocks revealed molecular fossils of chlorophyll that contained what is now considered the world's oldest pigment, one 500 million years older than any pigment known previously. And what this color was might just surprise you. It was pink. Wow. I mean, we there's been a lot of uh, famed shades of pink over the years, and we have mentioned, of course, Scaparelli's signature shocking pink on the show in the past. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure practically every one of us can conjure up a notion of Barbie pink. But what exactly would we call this? Is this primordial pink? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, well, <laughs> if it's not already called that, um, it should be because it's pretty spot on. Wouldn't that be fabulous if the entire prehistoric world was just pink on pink on pink? <laughs> um, so if you haven't guessed it by now, that's what we're talking about today. All things pink. And love it or hate it, the color pink has a fascinating history, apparently billion years in the making. It's symbolism shifting across not only time, but also the ways in which various cultures have used and perceived the color in fashion and dress. And it's a bit of a winding, twisting tale. And to delve into this topic, we are so fortunate to be joined today by one of the foremost academics working in the field of fashion history, Dr. Valerie Steele. She is the director and chief curator of the museum at FIT in New York City, where her current exhibition, Pink, the History of a Punk, Pretty, Powerful Color, is on view until January 5th, 2019. Welcome, Valerie. Yes. Valerie, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. Um, so I must admit right here at the top of the episode that until hearing a little while back that this was going to be the subject of your upcoming exhibition, I personally had never really given a whole lot of thought to the symbolic nature of pink outside of its contemporary connotations of gender in Western dress. But really, there is so much to the story here. And I think one of the things that your show reveals is the fact that the color pink is immensely polarizing. And for reasons that are not always immediately clear. So I'm thinking it may be helpful to start with some early history of the use of the color and build a little bit of a story arc from there. When do we start to see references to pink and how were early pink hues created for use in dyes? Let me start a little earlier than that. I mean, pink exists in nature, particularly in flowers. But although all humans can see pink, many cultures have not regarded pink as a very important color. And in fact, many cultures had no term for the color pink. 
They just would call it light red. Mm -hmm. And so ancient Greek, Latin didn't have words for it. Even English and French didn't have specific words, color words for pink, rose or pink, until the late 17th or 18th century. Wow. So it's very interesting to see how different cultures eventually decide that pink is a color that's worth giving a name to. Japan, on the other hand, had a word for pink, more than one word for pink, uh, more than a thousand years before Western Europe. But that was because red was so important for them. They had many words for red, and then they had additional words for pink, cherry blossom pink, peach pink, and in the 20th century also pinku, a loan word meaning foreign pink. Oh, wow. So there are many images from East Asia that show people wearing pink, men and women. We find some in the Middle Ages in Europe because pink dye was imported from Asia, from Sumatra and India, and including, for example, images of aristocratic men in long pink robes or images of the whore of Babylon in a long pink dress. But they're fairly rare, and the dye was not very long-lasting or very bright. So really, when in the late 17th century they discover a new kind of dye in South America— a new kind of Brazilian dye, they start using that, and that makes pink become the fashionable color in the 18th century in Europe, particularly in the French court and in Paris, which was so in love with novelty and fashion yeah. that pink becomes ultra-fashionable for men, women, boys, girls, interior decorating, porcelain, painting, everything. And that's when we see the real sort of beginning of pink in the West. Yeah, I mean, when I think of that period, I immediately think of those beautiful paintings by Boucher and Watteau, um, especially Watteau, who who depicted both male and female subjects um, in pink. But would you speak to the relationship in the 18th century of, of wearing the color pink and gender? Pink was essentially a a unisex color in 18th century Europe. It was worn as much by men as by women. And we can see that in extant garments, in paintings, and fashion plates. There's only one way in which pink was coded as feminine, and that had to do with makeup. So, for example, there's a famous painting by Boucher of Madame de Pompadour applying rouge. Yes. And she has a little brush, and she's painting on bright pink cheeks. And she's painting herself while he's painting her. And blushing and artificial blushing using makeup to give that effect were controversial in the 18th century because the idea was if you were an, a good, innocent woman, you would blush if suddenly something embarrassed you, you realized something sexual. But if you were so hardened that nothing could shock you, then you had to put on <laughs> artificial blush. So it was on the one hand something aristocrats wore, but also something that prostitutes wore. And oddly enough, in Chinese also there's a word for pink in ancient Chinese, which refers to powder head or a prostitute who wears too much makeup. Too much makeup, too much garish makeup. Well, yeah, so there's definitely in the 18th century this association be between the color pink and perhaps the erotic delights, we shall say. Could you speak on that in, in the context of two garments that are actually in the exhibition? Um, the first one being Charles James's pink taffeta tree dress, which is paired with a black velvet petal stole from 1955. And the other one, which is probably my favorite thing that's in the exhibition, which are Janelle Monet's pink pants that she wore in the music video, which if any of our listeners have not seen this music video, 
please go check it out. Um, but essentially, she's wearing an ensemble with a pale pink velvet spaghetti strap bodice, um, kind of kind of like a ballerina silhouette, paired with these outrageously wide pants that have layers and layers of chiffon that are kind of sculpted to give the impression of a vagina. I mean, it's fabulous. Um, so there is very pointed sexual references here in the Monet's ensemble. But also, we know from Charles James speaking about him dressing women, um, both of these kind of are sexually charged. Pink is very much a sexual color. And that's probably another reason why it's been coded feminine in the West. Uh, we think both in terms of pink as the exposed color, the color of nudity and blushing of light-skinned people. And you see that in Boucher's paintings where his nudes always have sort of not just little pink cheeks, but little pink bottoms and so on. Right. But then you also have pink parts. You have lips, tongues, nipples, and genitals. And this is something which everybody's known about and Tom Wesselman was not the first to have mouths, tongues, and nipples bright pink. In fact, you see that right through art and poetry. Flowers as well are perceived as sexual because, in fact, they are. Flowers are the sex organs of plants, and the color and the scent are intended to attract pollinators. So the comparison of women with flowers goes way back and implies that they're not just beautiful, but also they're sexual and fertile, and as well the idea that their beauty will fade uh, quickly. So as soon as I saw Janelle Monet's video, Pink, I realized I had to get a hold of the vagina pants because they were so clear. Although when you look at them, you think, well, George O'Keefe kept insisting it was a flower, that <laughs> form. But clearly flowers and genitalia uh, have considerable overlap. And I believe these were actually a recent acquisition for the museum. Is that true? We bought them specifically to put them in the pink show. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad they're going to live with us. <laughs> Well, you see the same thing with the pink pussy hats. And this goes back to your point that pink is one of the most divisive and controversial colors. Because when news came out that uh, women were planning to wear pink hats to the Women's March in, in 2017, uh, one feminist writer for the Washington Post said, Sisters, back away from the pink. You might think it's a good idea to wear cute little hats, but the situation facing women today is too serious. You don't want to trivialize it by wearing pink. And this idea then that pink is profoundly unserious goes right back to the idea that women are unserious. Women are silly, childish, or sexual. So that the very expression, pussy hats, referring to the statement, grab them by the pussy, and then conservative commentators mocking the protesters saying they were wearing their vagina hats, indicates how Pink's bad reputation is associated with the poor reputation that girls and women have traditionally had and is part of why a new generation of women have been reclaiming Pink, saying, no, you can be a girl and be strong and a feminist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to move us maybe back in time just a little bit because really when we start to see a huge explosion in the use and wearing wearing of pink um, was really in the 1950s. So not only in fashionable dress, but also in home products and interiors. Why was pink all of a sudden so hot in the 1950s? 
Well, if there's a long lead up to uh, pink becoming sort of the think pink color of the 1950s, the feminization of pink takes off in the 19th century as men uh, give up color and decoration in dress and start wearing sober, dark suits, leaving all that color and decoration to women. So what had read as aristocratic in the 18th century suddenly reads as feminine. Then Pink and other colors are seen as fine for women. You start to see marketing for children's wear and in the late 19th century with possibly pink for girls and blue for boys, but sometimes the other way around. Yeah, and I found that so fascinating because when you go into the exhibition, depending on which way you enter, but one of the very first things you see is that point being made with children's clothing that there was some dispute even in the 20th century as to if pink was for girls and blue was for boys, or was it vice versa? Of course, and this is because the color coding was ultimately uh, arbitrary. But what was interesting is that manufacturers and department stores realized you could sell more baby clothes by color coding them. Mm. Traditionally, babies had just you know had sort of simple white clothes, or they all wore the same colors. But if you could color code them, you could sell more. After World War II, you have a very conservative era when women are being pushed out of the workforce back in the home. You have a kind of debased Freudianism that says that women have to get in touch with their essential femininity and understand that they're castrated and they're not as powerful as men. And so women are increasingly pushed to look and act extremely feminine Mm -hmm. and put their little girls in pink clothes so that people will realize they're girls, treat them as girls, and get them in touch with their femininity. And so you see a total outbreak of pink. And that continues right through the 50s and 60s, where pink is associated with good girls, sweet innocence, but also with a sexuality. So you have Mamie Eisenhower in pink, but you also have Marilyn Monroe in pink. Right. So... Pink, if you think of the names of it, you have blush pink, bordello pink, baby pink, pale pink, naive pink, young girl pink. A lot of them have to do with the femininity. Right. And not only in some cases was it associated with um, strictly women. Um, In the 1950s, there were a few very famous men who embraced pink, including Elvis Presley and Sugar Ray Robinson. They both wore a lot of pink and both drove fabulous pink cars. Why pink for them, being high-profile celebrities that they were? And what did this say to their public in the context of how women were wearing pink? This is very interesting because the first half of the show, the first exhibition, looks really at the pink we know, the 150 years of feminine girlish pink. And then we explore in the second room the alternative stories of pink, pink in India and Mexico and other cultures, and also within African-American culture Mm -hmm. and African diaspora culture. So pink was something that in African diaspora color and African-American, Afro-Caribbean, wasn't just for women. It was a color that was worn by men, too. So Elvis is really imitating people like Sugar Ray Robinson with the pink Cadillac and the pink jackets. And because... African-Americans have had such an important impact on popular music, uh, Pink really became, in the words of the bass guitarist for The Clash, the only true rock and roll color. (laughs) I love that. So um, it has this underground significance where if you're a rebellious young male, you can be associated with Pink. Hence the title of the show, that it's a punk, pretty, powerful color. Mm -hmm. So that's an important side effect. And another One is that it's seen as a tropical color, so that it's very much a part of Latin American culture as well. And it's it's widely accepted in 
Asia, from India to Japan, as being a color which is appropriate for either sex in traditional terms. Right. I was actually really surprised. Um, there's a wonderful catalog that goes along with the exhibition. And um, I, I was really surprised when reading it to learn that pink is actually the official color of Mexico City. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That's fabulous. Um, so in in the context of Mexico specifically, how is the color emblematic of either national and or civic pride. It's very interesting because although pink is traditionally a color associated with Mexico because of all kinds of dyeing techniques, it's one that the Mexican government also saw as being typical, not of traditional Mexico, but of modern Mexico and Mm -hmm. modern Mexico City, very much promoted at the Mexican Olympics, for example. We have a whole chapter in the book by Tanya Melendez going through the history of uh, Rosa Mexicana, and she'll be speaking at our symposium on October 19th, where we'll have special talks on pink in Mexican and Japanese and African-American culture. Yay. I'm I'm already signed up. I'm ready to go. (laughs) Um... So we're talking about pride, um, but maybe we should shift gears just a little bit. How has pink played a role in the history within the LGBTQIA community? Pink began uh, tragically as a color associated with gay men. Everybody knows that the Nazis forced Jews to wear yellow stars. But when they put homosexual men in concentration camps, they forced them to wear a pink triangle. Mm -hmm. And this was not the color for gay liberation at the time. That was a lavender color. One of my European colleagues, though, discovered that in Weimar, Germany, prior to the Nazi seizure of power, pink was a color associated with sex workers, Mm. both male and female. So basically, the pink star on male homosexuals was an insulting way of implying that they were the recipients of um, phallic aggression. Mm -hmm. And then gay men in the 70s, when the stories started to come out and memoirs by people who'd been in concentration camps because they were gay came out and the gay movement in Germany and the U.S. appropriated the pink triangle, flipped it around and made it a sign of gay pride and specifically of um, opposition to the lack of agency and and, uh, action in an era of AIDS. Yeah. So they were reclaiming the power of, of They pink. reclaimed pink. And in fact, pink is still rather divisive within the LGBTQ community because it, it tends to appeal more to those who are self-consciously queer as opposed to the rainbow flag, which is more kind of a mainstream mm-hmm. and which doesn't have pink in it. Right. This whole reclamation of the meaning um, also plays out um, in the 1980s and in the 1990s again um, in terms of girl power. You know, we have Barbie promoting girl power in all pink, of course. Um, And you make a fabulous point um, in the book about the use of pink in the film Legally Blonde. Yes. So could you speak to media representations of the intersection of pink and feminism within the last 25 years? And and how do you think that specifically translated into the pink wearing of the pussy hats at the 2017 women's marches that took place all over the world? Well, you had lots of negative imagery of pink in films. Uh, in Legally Blonde, the idea is that it's a visual joke because how could someone who looks so dumb with the long blonde hair and the bright pink minisuit and the little chihuahua on pink, how could she possibly be a student at Harvard Law School? Mm-hmm. So it's a joke that pink is a stupid girly color. And by that time, though, in the 
80s and 90s, you find more young women who are saying, it's not stupid to be female. And so they're pushing back and saying that you can be female and powerful. You see that also in the breast cancer ribbon. But there's a continuation. You still see it now with mean girls. The idea that girls who are sort of stereotypically bitchy and horrible will be wearing pink. And so that had to, again, be turned on its head and saying, no, that's an ugly stereotype of women. You can have positive, powerful stereotypes that don't turn them into monsters. Because powerful women have often been turned into monsters, either witches or bitches. Right, right, of course. Um, So what do you think the power of pink is today in this current political climate. I happen to know that you were working on this show way before the election. Um, And did that kind of shift the meaning of the show overall? Did it did it underscore the importance of the color in any way in your mind as a curator? No, I think that it had become clear to me before the Women's March, the range of meanings of pink and how they were evolving. One of the most important things for me was reading the color histories of Michel Pastoreau, who's really the world's greatest historian of color. And he pointed out that much of what we read about color is either stupid psycho, uh, sort of psycho babble, or it is a kind of fake evolutionary history. And in fact, he, he makes it clear it's society that creates the meaning in color. Right. And different societies have done it differently. And we're now in the process where Groups of people, young women, young men, African-Americans, Latins, and gay men have all been transforming the meaning of the color pink. And this has definitely had an impact on fashion as well. With the last couple of years, the millennial movement was a question of lots of young men and women saying that they liked pink and they didn't see why the meaning of pink should be dictated by something that had come down through, you know, Euro-American white culture for 150 years. It could have other meanings as well. So that was something very exciting. Yeah. Before we sign off, um, because we're about to wrap up here today, I know you have a very busy day for the rest of your day. Um, Do you have any new or upcoming projects that you want to speak briefly about? Sure. We have two big shows that I'm working on. One will come out next February 2019 called Exhibitionism, 50 Years of the Museum at FIT. Yay! Next year will be the 50th anniversary of the museum at FIT and the 75th anniversary of FIT itself. So we're doing a show based on about 35 of our best exhibitions, going way back to the beginning. And then next September opens a show that I've been working on off and on for a while, Paris Capital of Fashion, which will look at more than 300 years of Paris as being a center of fashion. And and what does that mean? How do you become a fashion city, a capital of fashion? Well, I am looking forward to both of those. Um, And Dr. Still, thank you so much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to chat with us on Dress. This was so fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Valerie. Wow, April, she's always such an impressive speaker. And if you'd like to hear more from Dr. Steele Dress listeners, you can because she is the author of more than 20 books on the history of fashion and also the editor of the scholarly journal Fashion Theory. Yes, and um, she and I were actually talking about that on a sidebar about all the books that she's written. And she told me now it's actually 25. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) She's extremely prolific. Yeah. Um, And if you'd like to hear her speak more, um, you can also see her in conversation with many of the movers and shakers in the contemporary fashion industry on the museum at FIT's YouTube channel, which posts 
lots of great talks, lectures, and video content from past exhibitions, symposiums, visiting scholars, etc. And of course, you have until January of 2019 to check out the exhibition, Pink, The History of a Pretty, Punk, Powerful Color, which features a free audio tour narrated by Dr. Steele. But that does it for us this week, dress listeners, and perhaps you will consider the power of pink, the world's oldest color, next time you get dressed. This week, we will pink out our Instagram page at (laughs) dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. And if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's tepublic.com forward slash dressed. And in honor of this week's episode, we have launched an adorable new design featuring Marie Antoinette's flock of pink sheep that seems to have come up more than once on the show already. So check it out. Indeed. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Bye.